Welcome back, friends. Another episode of Quest for You. Not just another episode, another interview. If you just started listening to my podcast, I just recently began to interview. All my episodes so far have been me talking, and I will continue with that. A lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, and most of all, things I've practiced and used and that have worked for me that I want to pass on to you. But I also have noticed that in connecting closer with people here locally and in other places, that other people have also wonderful lessons to share, lessons I've learned from them that have helped me. So I decided to bring you those voices, their stories, their ideas, things that maybe you can relate to and that could help you. And today I am talking to Mark Estes. Mark is a very good friend of mine. Mark was my mentor at Toastmasters. When you join Toastmasters, you can select a mentor. And Mark and I connected right from the beginning. I fell in love with his speaking. And he talks a little bit about this in the interview. He's very creative. And you'll hear about his story as an artist. We had a wide-ranging conversation. What touched me probably the most was when he described his work with the dying. Mark is a hospice chaplain, a work that... I cannot imagine doing, but that he is amazing at. And as so often happens, I think the work that we do affects our regular life. And in Mark's case, I think it shows how wonderful of a communicator and listener he is and how creative his art, he talks about his art background and how it helps him to be a better communicator, to be an intuitive and present communicator. And that really shows in this interview. I hope you enjoy this. We touch on so many other topics like mindfulness, storytelling, finding your place, the importance of a support group in your life. And Mark talks about his. He also talks about his morning and evening routine. That is something that I like to ask most of my interviewees about and then he poses the question why this story and why now it's a question he uses to speak and communicate with the dying in his work but maybe this is a question we can all ask ourselves why this story and why now what comes up for you what is a story that you may want to share what is a story that in your life needs to be told now? Enjoy this interview, my friends. And Mark does not have a website, but if you really would like to get in touch with him, you can contact me and I will pass along your message. Enjoy, and I can't wait to talk to you soon. Much love. In my former career, before I was... Uh hospice chaplain. My goal was to be able to promote my photography career and go to New York City and get hired to do portraits. Uh-huh. 
Now, my career up until that point had been, I'd been making a good living, but I was definitely not doing what I wanted to do. I was doing sporting good catalog photography, which is probably some of the most boring photography you can do, clothes stuffed and styled on a white background <laughs> day after day, week after week. But I made a lot of money at it, and it was easy, and I just kind of uh, was unhappy, though, creatively and in a way wanted to be fulfilled. Uh -huh. So when I left that job, and that's a complete different story uh, in and of itself, when I left that job, I had always wanted to do portraits. All of my photography had really been focused on on people, connection with people. That's what I really enjoyed doing. So I had my photography portfolio and I would go off to New York City and show my work at the major magazines because they're all located in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I'd stay at the American Youth Hostel on the Upper West Side on uh, Amsterdam and uh, 101st or 2nd, the largest youth hostel in the country, beautiful old 17 hundred eighteen hundred building is it still around and it's still there uh -huh. and it's packed with european young travelers and here i am the only person working who's staying at this hostel so people are up all night and they're yelling and they're talking and they're turning the lights on and i'm in a room with uh, five bunk beds and you know 15 other young men from europe who are excited about seeing america and i'm getting up early way before they did to get my portfolio and go. After very little sleep. After very little <laughs> sleep, I learned to use earplugs and, and an eye shade pretty quickly. Uh -huh. And I would uh, have my list of magazine editors and I would go down to the local Starbucks. Uh -huh. And I'd sit there all morning long making phone calls and trying to set appointments so I could show my portfolio. And portfolio of photography, but of, of portraits, people. portraits, mm -hmm. portraits. Mm -hmm. And where, where, what, where did you shoot those portraits? These were through assignments and uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So I had photographed for, for instance, UCSF Medical Center, Stanford School of Medicine, uh, California Lawyer Magazine, California Real Estate Magazine, a wide variety. I've done some. Uh, Portraits long time ago, uh, Newsweek and Businessweek, Fortune Small Business. And so when I went back to New York City, my dream was to really get hired to do the work that I really love to do because mm -hmm. I wasn't getting hired to do that. And it certainly wasn't happening photographing sporting clothes on white backgrounds all day. So you did the photographing of sporting clothes Just as, a, as a business, as an income. That was my income. But yes. on the side, you did people yeah, photography. My heart was really, and part of my... Part of the way I feel like I defined and developed my image of myself and who I am and what I wanted to do was uh, through photography because I was given a toy camera when I was seven years old for Christmas and I really took to it mm -hmm. and I photographed and got a developing kit one year for Christmas and did the darkroom work. But I had the great fortune of being in Houston, Texas where I was born and at the same time, the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts, a special uh, alternative school that was being started in Houston, opened up. And I had the opportunity to audition and show my portfolio when I was 15 years old and get accepted into this accelerated program, Arts School. Wow. You, know, you know the movie Fame? 
Uh huh. Long time ago. Yeah, it's that was a performing. That was the performing arts high school. Oh. Uh, based on that, that high school in New York City. Uh huh. World famous people came out of that as a result of that, and the high school for the performing and visual arts school in Houston was not only performing arts because we had uh, orchestral music and dance and, uh, and other types of performing arts acting. But we also had visual arts, art and photography and multimedia. And so I had been accepted as a photographer in that. And this was one of those things that really changed my life because everyone else that went to this school were kind of experienced high school kids, much more mature beyond their years, some living on their own already and Mm -hmm. from different parts of town that I wasn't really used to. And they were already identified as artists in their minds. Mm-hmm. And I looked at them and got great influence from them. Did you define yourself as at an that, artist? At that point, I defined myself as an artist. It was one of those things that I linked all the way back to kindergarten when I got praised from my my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Sunbarber, because I the class was instructed to do portraits or pictures, Mm -hmm. a crayon picture of a kid or a person in a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And everyone else drew it in one way, but I was the only one that drew it from this high angle looking down and altering the colors instead of the blue water. I had, you know, different colored water and things like this. And I got praise for that. And it made me feel like, oh, okay, this is something I'm talented in. And high school for the performing and visual arts in Houston accelerated that because it was run by artists and an accelerated program. And I, again, got praise and I got influenced and pushed by the the people I went to school with Uh around me. Uh Really inspired by them. So did your ventures in New York with your portfolio lead to anything? They led to minor assignments. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to New York three times each time for about a week, week and a half. The last time was really geared towards, I was showing it to editorial and magazine clients, potential clients, but I was really more focused on designers and advertising, mm-hmm. trying to find a way to have my voice there, and I, I never could find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was um, it was actually one of the reasons why I left photography and after trying to really express myself and find my voice and uh, a format for which people would listen and I'd get hired for this, just like my heroes did, and, you know, like Annie Leibovitz and Matt Mahura and, and all these great mm-hmm. artists. And it wasn't happening. After all those years, I was still struggling financially and I was not getting paid to do the work I wanted to do. And I didn't feel like the people that I was be that were hiring me even knew what a good photo- photograph was or a good illustration was with rare exception at a certain point i was very perseverant for 20 something years sounds like it yeah at a certain point i found another love and another calling and you found your voice yeah in a different way i found it completely different way but it's actually not so different chaplaincy is not so different than photography how so Everyone thinks of the art world and uh, the blank canvas or the camera where you're going to look through and start to make a picture out of nothing as a creative process, and it is. You bring all that you are to this canvas, and you start to make the strokes and respond and react and and develop it and make layers and layers of information and expression. And really, that's what hospice chaplaincy is. My job as a chaplain is 
to be able to go and be with someone in a really critical transitional part of their life. They're dying. And be the best creative listener and witness and accompanier to these people mm-hmm. on this part of their life's journey. Mm-hmm. And so in a way it's kind of like abstract expressionistic painting where instead of coming from the head all the time where you say I'm going to make this line perfectly straight you're dripping and throwing and expressing and smearing and getting messy Mm -hmm. and really that's what happens in the chaplaincy world and in my role I don't know what's going to happen when I knock on the door I don't know what that person's going to say I might not know the answer I might have an inkling though uh, intuition Mm -hmm. a feeling in my chest or my stomach or wherever in my body that says uh, let's try this question inquire and go there this way and that's like making a brush stroke on a canvas so you're seeing this as creative work as well because you are asked to bring something from you Mm -hmm. out to help this person but you don't yet know what it's going to be like it's dependent on the situation Mm -hmm. yes so it is as creative as any artwork i've ever done interesting yeah and in many ways it is it is based on intuition There's study and knowledge that goes behind being a chaplain, but really it's about how well can I be present and mindful and listen. And then not move in front of them and take them by the hand and pull them down the path in the way that I think they should go, but to put myself aside and say, what is it that you really need? Mm -hmm. What can I hear that you're saying? And then walk alongside, encouraging uh-huh. Uh, listening, witnessing in a non- non-judgmental format because people are going to do it differently, way differently than I might do or might think I would do if I were dying in that moment. So, I think you just touched on some skills that are, I think, on a lot of people's minds these days. Being mindful, being present, mm-hmm. and listening. Mm-hmm. From what I see, a lot of people want to learn mm-hmm. how to be better at that. Do you have advice how to bring out those skills in ourselves? There are a wide variety of practices and possibilities that can really encourage that. But it really comes down to the actual term mindfulness, the ability to be in this place right now. And I think no one does it better. My Bible, so to speak, is John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living. John Kabat-Zinn worked at Massachusetts General Hospital, I think that's the name of it, in Boston. And he really developed in his stress clinic there a way for Westerners to understand how to be mindful based on a lot of Eastern practices, but being very careful to not refer specifically to any religion, but to be able to focus on a practice and to be able to say, how can I use seven steps or foundational building blocks to be able to be mindful and in the moment, no matter what, whether you have cancer or you just want a gold medal in the Olympics or whatever it might be. And the first one is probably one of the most important and difficult ones to learn, and that's non-judging. Because in our lives, everyone has experiences and they react. And they usually end up labeling this experience as good or really bad and this actually rules uh, their lives Mm -hmm. and mindfulness asks you to say be aware of making labels 
in every part of your life and then say, I am going to be an unbiased witness Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to watch it. I'm not going to determine whether it's good or bad. In fact, I'm not even going to try to change it. I'm just going to observe it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the first foundational building blocks for being mindful. And this is probably what you practice in your work. It's what I it's what I practice in my work, but it's actually what I practice in my life. Uh, if I wake up and feel anxious, if I'm uh, worried about my job or uh, responsibility or finances or why, you know, all mm-hmm. the things we worry about from day to day, my health or things like this, I can employ these techniques, these mm-hmm. ways of being mindful as a way to be with and to say, you know, in life things happen. There's no way around that. There are going to be some painful moments. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens though is when we label these things as good or bad, we also kind of beat ourselves up or we make it bigger and worse than it really is. That's uh, like uh, amplifying through your interpretation of what the original pain was, that's amplifying it. So in Buddhism, they talk about the first pain, whatever this event in life is, is like getting shot by an arrow. But your interpretation, oh, it's terrible. It's the worst thing that could ever happen. I'll never survive all these judgments, is like taking a second arrow in your hand and stabbing yourself in that same wound again and again. And that's the real, that's the real pain. And so if I can find a place where I can be mindful and resist stabbing myself using the second arrow, then I might be able to proceed in a more healthy fashion, in a more grounded, balanced, hopefully peaceful fashion. So how do you, uh, how do, you do this? You, you have a problem, something that occupies your mind. Mm-hmm. How are you... I get the part of not judging it, not judging it as good or bad, mm-hmm. just looking at it from a distance. But the problem is still there. Mm-hmm. No, I have failed a test. I don't have money in the bank to pay my rent. I mean, the fact is the fact. Mm-hmm. Right. So life goes on, no doubt about it. Those, sure. things, those things are real problems. And I'm not saying that it's like becoming passive. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, you're going to try to deal with those issues not having enough money or whatever it might be mm-hmm. that you're worried about, you're going to continue to in, encourage yourself mm-hmm. to proceed, uh, encourage yourself that um, I can do this, this, and this. So those, it's not saying not to do those things and not to strive for mastery or for the ability to... You still solve the problem. Right. You still solve the problem. But the fact of the matter is, if nothing else happened in this moment, if you come at it from a place of non-judgment, of patience, of beginner's mind, of letting go, of uh, holding on to a fixed, attached uh, end, that there, are, there is the possibility that you could, in doing this process, be more present and then more able to deal with the actual issue that's going on. I, I think it's just very interesting because John Kabat-Zinn in his book talks about the stress clinic when he's in the hospital working with people, say that have cancer or something like that, or are trying to stop smoking or lose weight or whatever the stressful thing is in their lives. And when they first come on, he asks everybody to write down their three goals 
for taking this workshop on and attending the stress workshop. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I want you to forget about those goals. <laughs> During this class, for the next 8 or 12 weeks, uh, just forget about those. Put them aside. We're just going to focus on the techniques right now, these, these, these lessons on how to be present. We'll get to those other things. Mm-hmm. It's not that we don't have to take care of these things in our lives. So it's not airy-fairy um, and unrealistic. Have you taken that workshop? I have. So you've met him? I've never met him, mm-hmm. but he has taught his procedure, mm-hmm. and it's taught by thousands of people, um, major hospital systems like I'm, uh, you know, at Kaiser. I went to Kaiser. Mm-hmm. They offer it there in their behavioral health unit so that you can go there and take the course and find out what it is mm-hmm. to listen, to observe, mm-hmm. to walk, to eat, to pay attention to your body mindfully, to be able to apply it. Mm-hmm. day to day. So do you miss photography at all? Uh, this is a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think I think you did a really good job in in <laughs> in telling me how you translated the skill one creative activity to another. But you still had a passion for photography since you yes. were little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What happened to that passion? Well, I've got to tell you, I've not missed the photography business one second. I've never doubted it. And the I, business part. And I, don't, and I don't miss that at all. I was so consumed, and I had spent so much time on the business of it, end of the of photography, that I wasn't actually focused on being creative and making pictures. Uh-huh. So I don't miss that at all. But I also don't really think these days, at this point, about photography so much. Every once in a while, I have these ideas But that's just a minimal part of my, my routine. I really kind of put it aside. Yet, I still think there is something there waiting to be born creatively. And I think it's going to happen in the years to come, possibly after hospice chaplaincy. I yeah. don't know. But I also think in terms of painting and collage and other drawing and things like that. I think in those terms as well. What about speaking? What about speaking? <laughs> as a creative... Just as a background, you and I met through Toastmasters. And the first time I heard you speak, I was inspired. <laughs> I uh, I was new. I was afraid to stand in front of an audience. And there was Mark standing in front of the group of 20 people. And I was in tears by your speech. I was moved. And I think that's that is evidence of a great speech. Yeah. And so you became my mentor. And... Um, I think you have a talent for speaking. So mm-hmm. my question is, where are you taking, do you have any plans to take, yeah. to take that talent further? It's really interesting because speaking is a mixed bag for me. <laughs> and it is a creative process. Mm-hmm. And it's based on my love of storytelling. And this, again, goes right back to the reason I did portrait photography as a photographer. And one of the reasons why I love chaplaincy, it's about making one-on-one connection. It's about storytelling and story listening, two separate things. And so I feel like um, there is something in there that just thrills me. And I love the presentation part of a speech. I know many people are, it's a, they're deathly afraid of being up on stage in front of people. And that's the part I love. Maybe this is the extrovert part of me <laughs> because I love to tell a story. And if I can make someone smile or cry or lead them down the road in a creative way, mm-hmm. 
not necessarily linearly where they can figure it out steps ahead and surprise them or give them something to learn or something that they'll remember. That's what really interests me and fuels my passion for being up on stage. And so as a Toastmaster, I felt like it was a creative process just like art and chaplaincy is. And what I love about speaking is the storytelling. I even did a speech, you may remember, about my father and his love of storytelling. Yep. I think I inherited that from my father. And he would receive such joy by connecting with a stranger, creating a sense of instant familiarity. Well, that trait touches my heart. And that's why I love the speaking part of it. It's what I love about chaplaincy. It's what I love about photography when I'm doing a portrait is I'm connecting with people. I'm telling them stories to relax or rephrasing or listening to their stories. And it happens that way when I do a speech. The flip side is that I agonize on the preparation, the concept development, and the writing of the speech. Truly agonized like a recovering perfectionist that I am. (laughs) (laughs) So if I can get over that, and so that's one of the reasons I joined Toastmasters, and it's one of the reasons I practice speech writing and speech giving. I find it's a true growing pain for me. Mm -hmm. People listen to me speak and they say, oh, how could that be? But that's because I'm loving the speaking part and the connecting and the storytelling so much. And I think that I'm afraid, just like as I'm not a very good writer, I'm a really slow reader and a very slow writer because I'm thinking of all the possibilities that uh, would go into this expression so that the person that I'm speaking to will be able to get the picture that I'm painting. They'll be able to see the scene of emotions and thoughts. I think I learned this really early on in my childhood development that I learned to really think ahead, to control my environment by my words so that I could control the responses people like parents or teachers or other kids would uh, have a response that I wanted so that I wouldn't get beat up at school or so that, you know, I wouldn't get spanked or so that uh, someone would think well of me. Yeah, this is a skill I think you really have that I admire, that I don't have. Hmm. You're in control of your words, Hmm. I feel. When I talk to you, you you have it all in a sense. You're present. So I'm sure in your mind you're thinking about what to say next, but it never shows you never mm-hmm. like you still give me the time of day mm-hmm. as I talk to you. I feel like I'm the only person in the world, even though I think internally you're processing and thinking what's the best way to respond. But then when you respond is a very thoughtful and selfless kind of response. Mm. Well, so that is a part of it. There's no doubt about it. I do, uh, again, because of those maybe childhood wounds, learned how to protect myself by thinking ahead so that it wouldn't say something that would get me in trouble. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, there's a drawback to that too. And I go back to our, our words on mindfulness. How can I be the most mindful possible? And as I'm saying this, and as you were just making that comment earlier, I'm thinking, ah, how can I be mindful of the words that I'm speaking right here and right now to make them even more powerful? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do need to know a little bit about the story of where I'm going 
And even if it's not a pre-written speech, which I really don't like to have pre-written speeches, I really like to be able to have a concept and a couple of steps and then to go off on whatever comes to my mind intuitively. My speeches, if I give the same speech, it's never the same twice. I think you're very intuitive. Mm -hmm. And I think that whole preparation portion of speech, mm -hmm. of speaking, is kind of limiting. You feel constrained by it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I use the word agonize, and uh, I think that's a, a self-critical practice of a perfectionist, mm -hmm. which basically is rooted in fear. So how can I make either fear work for me and the mindfulness of that, or how can I redirect myself so that instead of being focused on fear, I'm able to maybe transform that into something much more powerful and beautiful. And really, it's kind of like, a, it's like a dance. You know, a painter dances with the brushes and the colors and the strokes on the blank canvas. Mm -hmm. as they interact with the artist's mind and passion and heart. But how can I find joy and passion out of speaking from an open and honest perspective and let the thoughts and words and descriptions and the lyrical phrases come like a waterfall right. of words kind of coming along to create this flow the stream of thought you see that somewhere there is you see yourself finding this in some form or another i mean in a, in a sense you're doing the speaking as part of your career but yes. i feel your messages are very inspirational i think you could easily stand in front of a bigger audience and have a major impact mm -hmm. on people yeah i think there i think it is well certainly it is a part of my work right now because i am asked to speak many times spontaneously in my role as a chaplain I'm also asked to speak uh, in many of my other roles. For instance, I'm a volunteer storyteller and volunteer clergy person for Compassion and Choices as I speak about medical aid in dying and the California End of Life Option Act. So this is something I'm passionate about. And yes, it's a lot of facts, but how can I bring some kind of personalization into it mm -hmm. to make it real? Because I've been at the bedside of people who've used medical aid to die because of their great suffering. And uh, how can I present this information in a neutral way, not trying to sway or sell anybody, but allow them to express their lives the way they are meant to be. Further than that, I'm not really sure. I have taught a little bit. I, I taught for a couple of semesters at the Academy of Art College. and What did you teach? Uh, portrait photography. Uh -huh. But I wanted to make it so much more than that, more than just uh, pictures. I wanted to make it about the individual artist's development and their way of thinking and, and conceptualizing. And basically, how is this going to be able to be a form they can communicate to people mm -hmm. their feelings and thoughts, ideas and passions. And yet, in the formal process of preparing for a class, I agonized each week how I was going to present it to these students. Once I got up on stage in the classroom, then I was I was fine. But um, so it's my it's my own little dance. Right. Uh, stutter. I do a little stutter step instead of dancing <laughs> smoothly across the floor. <laughs> yeah, I remember. But that's good. I remember some of the speeches you were telling me about. You're like, oh my god, I got up at three in the morning before the speech, and I I rewrote the whole thing. Or I remember <laughs> you things like that where you change things last minute. So what do you see? For yourself next steps do you have 
dreams, aspirations, things you want to do. I think you, I like that you always like, well, I don't know what's going to come next. Maybe I'll do something with this. I like yeah. you always keep the door open for new mm -hmm. possibilities. Is there something yeah. you see yourself definitely going into a certain direction? Yeah. So right now it's kind of a time of mystery. I've been doing uh, chaplaincy for seven years now. Well, coming up on seven years. And, and the whole time making this big career switch at age 55 and going back to school, uh, to seminary, I went to the Chaplaincy Institute in Berkeley, an interfaith seminary. And to be able to make, using that as an example, that was a pretty smooth transition. It came without, I was working with a life direction coach and I was consulting my my supporters, my resources uh, of how I could do what I wanted to do, figure it out, and then have the courage to see a path and make it happen. And I made it happen. And, uh, and so I've been cruising along in chaplaincy, just really feeling like I am in my place. Nice. Uh, as Stephen Cope, the author, writes in his book, uh, The Great Work of Your Life, your dharma uh, which you happen to have with yes, you <laughs> i do and i'm in the process of reading this now but it's an example of finding your calling stephen cope in his book calls it hit your dharma mm -hmm. and uh, to be able to make the commitment to uh, master what it is you want to do and be able to with great determination and uh, be able to do that and he gives examples like beethoven or Robert Frost or Jane Goodall or Susan Anthony as people who really went out there to discover what their calling was and committed 100% and did it. So right now I don't I'm at a transitional point. I am I am questioning certain things about my role as a chaplain and is does it should it be someplace else? Should I be working in a hospital instead of a hospice? Uh, do I want to do some other kind of form? Or is it completely different? Maybe, who knows? Maybe. What do you think will get you the answers? How will you get to you finding mm -hmm. that answer? Well, I think I have a really good foundation of resources. that I, I use the word resources, these supports that I've developed and collected in my life. Uh, my, my spiritual director therapist, my wife, I live with an angel who is a good listener and a wise coach herself. I have uh, numerous processes. The one that comes to mind right now is a Quaker tradition that I've learned in, in attending uh, the Courage and Renewal retreat series uh, here in the Bay Area. It's been uh, one of their series have been happening over the last year. Mm. And I've attended these along with my wife. And... The Quakers have something called uh, a clearness committee, and it's where you form a circle of trust with people who you've invited in to hear your question or your concern, your worry or your goal, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, through this format, state for 10 minutes, and there's a timer uh, in this group someone times, you have 10 minutes to state what it is that you want, uh, what you're thinking of, what you're questioning, and then your clearness committee, the other people in this group, have an hour to not give any advice, but to ask open and honest questions. That's it. And you answering those questions? Uh, sometimes. 
I answer them and sometimes I might say, I don't know, I'll have to think about that. Or, no, nah, that doesn't really make apply to me right now. But it's a series of open and honest questions, nothing leading. And, and What do you mean nothing leading? Aren't well, the questions supposed to help you get to your answer? Yes, but it's the individual who has the question who really is no, knows the answer deep inside. It's providing you with access to this deep inner knowledge. Because if someone says, the question was, well, don't you think therapy would help you? That's a leading question. That's true. So the uh, instead of uh, asking questions that that are answered also with yes or no, they use questions like, "How would it feel for you to know that you were living your calling? Huh. What would have to happen for you to know or see or you know things like this?" You ask open-ended questions instead of. Will this work for you? Do you do this? Mm-hmm. Those are yes or no answers, mm-hmm. and they're not very good. Or why I, don't you do? Why don't you do try this? Or right. why don't? Yeah, exactly. And those are those are leading. So, it's a really uh, a belief in coaching. I was taught that there's a belief. I, I attended the Coaches Training Institute. I was just going to actually ask you about this. And uh, I didn't get certified as a life direction coach, but I did the basic program. Uh, in my early years of, of that led up to hospice because I thought it was very related to how to communicate with the dying. So the belief there is that everyone is creative, resourceful, and whole. You've got everything you need really inside of you, even if you don't see it. Mm-hmm. And with that belief, then you say, how can I encourage this person? How can I uh, witness this person? How can I communicate with this person so that they can look inside and see, ah, at the core, my deep inner uh, self, my, my, my deep wisdom really knows the difference. What does it feel like? What does it sound like? How can I let that out? How can I get to know that voice a little bit more? And therefore, you've got everything you need in most situations. And the other thing is that I've heard the, the uh, psychologist Rick Hansen, who mm-hmm. teaches at the at the University of California, and uh, his program, who who's, the name is escaping me right now, is uh, I've read his book. His, his he's got a whole it. series of them that are really about uh, using self-directed thoughts, self-directed neuroplasticity, yep. that you can change your brain and your thinking by directing your thoughts, and it really goes in line with uh, my love, the parts of Buddhism that I love. Uh, being able to witness yourself and your and pay attention to your thinking mm-hmm. and your thoughts. But he asked a question uh, at the beginning of one of his workshops, and he says, "What would happen if everything were you believe that everything was okay right now? You're not. You've got enough air to breathe. You're not dying. You're not in a war zone. For most part, these situations, ha- our situations, have so many things that." lead us to think everything is not okay. What's the truth? Mm. The truth is right now, I'm okay. And that really is an empowering position to be in, recognizing that, and then recognizing you can also create uh, the stories that help you be be in this place of everything is okay. Because a lot of our problems start right here in our mind. Exactly. Yeah. self-created again that goes right back to what i said earlier about buddhism's thought about the second arrow 
yes, things happen to us that we can't control in life. We have a car accident, we get an illness diagnosis, we lose a job, whatever it might be. And so those are painful. The skill is mindfully being with those things. Yeah, they don't feel good, but still being with them and then uh, not amplifying them with reaction, reactive kind of label making that catastrophizes the whole thing mm-hmm. and stabbing yourself, inflicting extra, extra pain by pushing the second arrow in, this arrow of interpretation. It seems like we need more of such a message in this world, especially right now, yeah. difficult times. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Interviewing is like a creative process. It's very creative. Yeah, it's like in the sp- in the moment responding and the thing is, know. but the thing is, like you say, so many things, and I, but I don't want to interrupt. And then yeah. when it's my turn, I'm like, okay, what? Which one did I want to follow up on? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Every once in a while, I go off on a tangent. I go, oh wait, what was I saying? What was that? Where was I? Where's I going with this? <laughs> I'm curious. Do you have daily practices that you rituals that you follow? that help you be mm-hmm. your best self every day? Yeah, they're a secret, and I would uh, have to uh, have Bruno th- from the mob come over and take care of you if I told you. <laughs> so sorry. And now that you know where I live, this is a really <laughs> dangerous situation for me. <laughs> yes, I do have practices, and I think it's absolutely essential that people have practices if they're going to pursue being mindful or whatever their mastery uh, mm-hmm. focus is going to be. So I have a meditation practice. What kind of meditation? I do mindfulness meditation or vipassana style meditation, insight. It is really a quite a basic form of meditation and one of the most powerful that can be applied to any situation. So I have mindfulness. I also consider uh, exercise to be a practice that's really important for relieving stress, for keeping me clear cleaning out the cobwebs of my mind so yep. i'm training for my second marathon Yay. coming up in march the oakland marathon uh, in the evenings i have a kind of a wind down routine mm-hmm. that i use where i many times i'll meditate but i also do a, a tai chi style of movement and breathing before i go to bed kind of clearing out the space and saying that Uh, in this space that I'm in right now, the space of my bed where I'm going to rest, that I will be safe and secure, that I'll be able to relax and uh, get deep rest. Mm. And I do that uh, that uh, along with some stretching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to have a practice uh, that I enjoyed for a long time, and I find it hard to, to fit in sometimes just time-wise because these other practices take a lot of time. But uh, journal writing yep. is an important practice, and I had done the 12-step-based program called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And one of the things she impressed, impressively suggests in all of her books is morning pages. Yep. Uh, the process of getting up uh, as soon as you get up in the morning, writing three pages of whatever comes to your mind. You don't have to ever read them again. You can throw them away if you want. But the fact of the matter is there's something magical and freeing about doing it before your day gets going. Write three pages. And you can resist it. You can write, I hate doing this, blah, 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 all this stuff. But the fact of the matter is if you do that 
I, I do feel like it has. Have you done it? I have done it, and uh, I did it. Uh, I've done it off and on over the years. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the practice of doing it right now. Uh, my wife does something similar to that every day that I get to observe. But when I was doing it, I noticed that um, my dreams became more visit, vivid. Um, and I also felt like it was a form of meditation, this writing meditation, to mm-hmm. be able to release and let go. I feel like I've done it too for a little bit. Hard, mm-hmm. It's hard to keep up mm-hmm. if you have um, many other things that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I felt like it kind of gave me some clarity mm-hmm. on things that I was thinking about. But I've also realized I can get that clarity in other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, meditation or mm-hmm. yoga or, or exercise or just it's... I think the sitting down and writing, it forces you to be quiet and reflect. Mm-hmm. And I think we definitely, that's what we all need to do more right. of. Mm-hmm. But I think we can f- maybe find it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, the, the goal is not to uh, fill up your day with things to do. Correct. Like to have 20, 20 programs that you do each day, meditation and this and that and the other. Um, and I have a lot of interests in those kinds of things. I like a lot of those things. So if I'm doing a class, Rick Hansen's neuroplasticity course online, uh, it doesn't give me a whole lot of time to maybe run as much as I want or whatever else it yep. might happen. And then something happens at work that requires extracurricular you know, activity and time. Uh, how do I fit that in with all the other but meditation, would you say meditation is your one stable that you will always do? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I'm pretty committed to that. And there are fa- there are phases. It's also a momentum game. Yeah. You know, if I if I I just got back from Europe and I couldn't tell through jet lag going the other direction to Europe which way was up and what day it was. I missed <laughs> I missed a couple of days of, of meditation and then I f- then I you know you lose you can I can lose my yes. momentum. And then it takes a conscious effort to be able to get back and say, okay, now I'm going to get back into my practice. And, but that happens. Yeah. You know, hey, so we're not perfect. Correct. You pay attention and make corrections and get back on the horse and I have I've again. been trying to get back into meditation, but mm-hmm. I started yoga. And that's the thing for me. Mm-hmm. I used to do yoga, meditation, and maybe even writing something mm-hmm. at like an hour set aside every morning. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just at half an hour, but I'm working my way towards. I think mm-hmm. it's all about the steps you take. And yeah, as long as about, you do something. It is about the steps you take. And I always say, what's the most, what's the most loving thing, self-loving thing that I can do right now for myself? Mm-hmm. And it's not piling on a whole bunch of stuff and getting stressed out because I can't do 12 meditations and six writings and right. you know, run 10 miles every morning. And I like that. The other thing is, and this is something that I've learned from my wife, Susan, is that if you just take one small action, okay, so you don't have time to run six miles in the morning, but you have time to run around the block mm-hmm. and you just do it. You take one small step, one bite-sized piece. Mm-hmm. It helps focus and get the momentum going. I talk a lot about that in my podcast because mm-hmm. I think... As humans, we tend to just say, oh, I can't do it at all. I can't, it's not, it's too mm-hmm. much. I can't do it. And then we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. But we can always do a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you inspire me because I think that you have such uh, a, a drive for doing all these things that are really living fully on, on, on multiple levels, you know, uh, from, from rock climbing to, 
to uh, your work with kids to you know all kinds of things that you do your blog and things like that which mm -hmm. is really I know it benefits you but it benefits the greater good <laughs> and it's a balance there it's hard of reaching out and and touching and assisting others it's hard it's yeah. definitely like this weekend I did interviews and mm -hmm. I didn't go rock climbing mm -hmm. you know it's one or the other but it starts in my mind right mm -hmm. because it's all things enjoy it's all different levels of enjoyment and they all have a different purpose in my life and mm -hmm. I just have to shut off the monkey mind that mm -hmm. tries to tell me you should be in the mountains climbing no I need to be here right now and mm -hmm. I enjoy this mm -hmm. this is my first time interviewing people, and I love it. Well, I appreciate that because you have a smile on your face <laughs> and you seem to be tickled uh, with the enthusiasm or the passion of being able to talk with people and hear people's stories. I do. And I think story, I think listening and drawing out the stories as an interviewer, you draw them out, but really more the fact of listening is much more difficult than people think. They think speaking is much more difficult and I'm not so sure about that. Do you listen more than you talk when you're with the dying? I sure try to. Or do they sometimes want you to tell them stories as well? Rarely do they ask me to tell stories. Uh, you know, working with the dying is not what I thought it was going to be like a lot of times. I think in the hospitals, you get a lot of uh, situations where uh, there are acute situations. People have just been told bad news or they've just had an accident. And so it's really a heightened state. In hospice, a person has gone through a series, usually with palliative care doctors, and come to the point where they've made a decision. They may not be accepting of their life, end-of-life transition, but they may be a little bit more open to the fact that, or used to the fact that things have changed and they've decided to go to hospice, and hospice would be a longer term, slight, often, not always, but often slightly less acute uh, situation to mm -hmm. create a, a communication with. So people don't, um, I used to think, oh, yeah, be very philosophical, I'm here at my end of my life now, and I wanna do this and that, and I think that that's not true. I find denial to be much more evident, and, uh, and having, lots of uh, chatter in their minds that make them very ungrounded and dif have difficulties and have you have you read the book or heard of the book the five regrets of the dying uh, I've heard someone recite the five regrets of the dying have you have people ever told you their regrets no never well you know not not so much in a linear form like that I think I think over a period of Days or, or just weeks. a regret. I wish I had done more. Just yeah. Do people talk about that? Uh, surprisingly, not very much in hospice. I, I find. Huh. Uh, you have to understand that at this point. Uh, first of all, fifty percent of my patients have dementia, and they can't speak very well or have very much. A lot of them don't have a whole lot of self-consciousness or ability to express themselves. So my way of communicating with them is a different way than just verbally. Uh, they may be speaking in a form of word salad, and I may be not able to hear or understand only a couple of words. Wow. But I can go to a place of, okay, well, what does that feel like to me? What does it feel like they're saying? Huh. And I'll have them tell me more. And they might, I might say, tell me more about that. 
and they would go blah blah elephant blah 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 circus blah 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 river but and scar sky blah blah and and I go oh okay well that sounds like a circus is it you know you know I I it's just intuition and wow. and just going there so the but, but sometimes the communication is touch and sometimes it's music and it depends it's a different language that i have to learn to speak so those people are not going to be going oh you know i've just been sitting around here and now at the end of my life i think i really regret that i didn't spend more time with my kids or something like that it really doesn't it's it's not like they've reached the mountaintop with this great perspective mm-hmm. rarely is it like that it's more like that in the movies i do uh, i do have people though uh, that are able to converse with me and they're just many times they're just trying to make it day to day because they have fear or pain or something like that. So my role might not we we might not ever get to this place of let's look at life perspective. However, life review is a very common thing that we do. Tell me about your life. What's meaningful? Uh, what story happened? What happened? Or they might be telling me a story of I was. I was uh, in the army, and this happened. And so I usually ask the question, why this story and why now? And so I many times will pursue these threads. This is where the really sensitive listening comes in. Why this story and why now? It's no accident they're telling this story. Uh Are there metaphors? The other thing that does happen, though, and this is something I learned from reading the book Final Gifts, Communications with the Dying by Two Hospice Nurses, This is really what led me to hospice in the first place back in 2001 as a volunteer, is that many times the dying, this is something I consistently see. They speak to people who have died, have already died. They see them in the room. Wow. Happens all the time. I see it a lot. And instead of saying, you know, uh, that's just a hallucination. We're going to give you more antipsychotic drugs so you don't have to have these things. Um, uh, consider the possibility that actually might be part of their coping style to deal with their end-of-life transition. It happens so often. Wow. So I say, well, tell me. You know, I can't see your father here in this room right now. What's he saying to you? How does it feel to hear this story from him? The other thing is, in addition to seeing people who have died in the room and talking to them and communicating with them is that many times people speak their stories are analogies of travel. I've got to get to the train station. What time does the airplane leave? I've got to pack my suitcase. Where's my suitcase? Why is that? Because it's getting ready to travel from this world on. And that metaphor happens over and over again. And I first read about it in in the book Final Gifts, and I thought, well, that's, you know, from a a conceptual point of view, that makes a lot of sense, but I see it all the time. Really? People talk to you about upcoming travel? Yeah, or, well, they are seeing it as, can you, have you seen my suitcase? Where's my suitcase? I said, I I don't know, We we can try to find it for you. Where do you need to go? What do you need to put in this suitcase? Wow. What's your suitcase look like? Who can help you carry the suitcase? Where do you need to take the suitcase? All of these stories and questions might come up. And then they might say, hey, you know, a lot of times you find relief. Oh, good. My suitcase is in the closet. Oh, good. I have plenty of time to get to the train station, whatever it might be, you know. You think it's it, you think it's you putting them at ease with your questions or? Well, certainly 
the the questions can provide the ground by which they can take it all the way. But really, it's them. It's it's what they what they bring to the situation. I think so. now I understand that creativity aspect yeah. that you talked about. Mm-hmm. I see that now. Yeah. I mean, you really have to be intuitive, yeah. creative, yeah. present. Yeah, and what do they need? What is it that they say? What are they saying that they need? It may not be verbally, but what are they indicating or communicating that they need? I had a person one time. He was 100 and 102 years old, 101 years old, really old guy, very frail. Yeah. Every time I went in his room, extremely hard of hearing. Anytime I went in his room, he would. Uh, I would sit down there and say, "Hi, this is Mark the Chaplain." Oh, he would reply, "I am so glad to see you. Thank you for being here." And I said, "Oh, great! I'm glad to be here. What do you need to tell me? What do you want to share? Or tell me about this or that? Or you referred to, you know, you were a piano player. You know, what did you like to play?" And and he would just go off in these stories. Oh, I used to play with this woman, and we traveled in Europe, and I just loved it. I said, well, you know, do you want to play the piano now? And he said, well, I do, but my hands don't work. And I said, how do you feel about that? You know, it keeps going. They, if His answer leads to another question. Right. What is the question? What is it that really needs to be opened up? And uh, he couldn't play, so I said, well, what kind of piano music, what pianist do you love? He loved Chopin. So I would pull up my iPad and I'd turn, find a Chopin Aww. tune. I'd turn it full volume so he could hear it, hold it right next to his ear. And he'd close his eyes and he'd smile. Oh, that's wonderful. Aww, I love that's it. Awesome. So, you know, you do that. Or I sang him a song one day and played on my ukulele, which was kind of funny for, <laughs> for, for me playing for this great musician. But he... He would communicate and say, oh, it's so wonderful to hear someone sing and, and thank you and this kind of thing. So I would, I would think, Mark, you also grow from those interactions. Oh, absolutely. You learn it's, it's and you... Like, I, I, uh, it's, it certainly is at, at least reciprocal. Uh, yeah. I get something and, and they do too. Uh, I, get, I learn, I try to learn and pay attention. And this is one of the things I've... I've uh, observed since I very first came in contact with hospice way before I, when I first became a volunteer and was actually donating my photography services to a hospice. Mm. I photographed this nurse. I, st- I shadowed her for a day and photographed her. And it, they ended up using this picture on the cover of the American Journal of Nursing. Mm. And so I asked this uh, nurse, I said, April, it seems to me that people that work in hospice must be pretty comfortable with death and their own death because, you know, they're around it so much. They thought, how do I want to die or what do I want to happen when I'm dying? She goes, nope, (laughs) it's not true. The people that worked in the hospice many times were very skilled at sectioning off their perception uh, in these parts of their lives, and they were able to avoid death and thinking of that. Even though they dealt with it in a professional level, they might have turned it off on a personal level. Hmm. And so I really try to not do that. I try to say, what would it be like if I was in this person's shoes in this situation? Hmm. And I, I don't do it to the point that I'm like crying in the corner and thinking I'm dying. I do it as a just a reminder. What's the information here that I can, that I can receive, that I can collect, what can I observe that's going to inform me about life? 
and death. Am I scared to die? Yeah. Have I been around people that weren't scared to die? A few. Have I watched some people uh, with procedures and, and coping skills that help them uh, ease their death or dying process or found a way to make meaning? Yes. I don't know how I want to die or how I'm going to do it. But I do want to be able to take these lessons and pay attention. And I think of this guy who was just, you know, the pianist who was laying in bed. And he would just say with the most heartfelt thanks. Totally. I asked him one time. I said, he would just say, thank you for coming. I'm so glad you're here. Mm. And, and I'd say, you know, you seem to be like a really positive person. Have you been a positive person? All yes, I have, he said. Uh, other people, <laughs> you know. Other people... Uh, you can learn from something like that, yeah. right? I mean, isn't that inspiring? Yeah, it's inspiring. I, the other thing is that, you know, gratitude is a practice that's really important. How can you be grateful uh, in the situation you're in? Mm -hmm. How can you experience, maybe get a bird's eye view of cruising through life. You're flowing like on a river mm -hmm. and uh, you see these things. You see these experiences. I'm so glad that... I had the family that I did, or I grew up here, or I experienced this. And yes, there are some really bad things. There are some terrible illnesses or wounds or problems or accidents or departures from separations from other people. I can look at them with a perspective of appreciation, of gratitude. And one time I was at the bedside of a man I didn't. I never really got a chance to know him personally, but I visited him a few times. And in his dying last days, he was kind of restless, which happens a lot. He was saying something. There were other people in the room, but I went over to him and I leaned my ear right next to him, and I said, "Can you tell me again what you said?" And he was saying under his voice, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." That's all? That's it. And I thought, wow, that's what I aspire to. Could I get to the end of my life in my last hours in bed and just say thank you? I'm grateful yeah. for the person, for my life, for my experiences. I'm just grateful. Wow. Yeah, I don't feel too good right now. And yeah, it's hard to say goodbye. And yeah, I'm, I'm, all these there's regrets, a lot of problems. Blah, blah, blah. But yeah. If I could just say thank you. Wow. And so maybe that's part of my practice uh, and aspiration is could I just say that no matter what kind of shit I go through each day that I feel or interpret my second arrow, stabbing myself with interpretations that make the pain even worse. What would happen if I was just able to say, this is my life and I'm grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> it's a good way to end, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm really grateful. Actually, I practice, I try to practice this at the end of the day because I, go, I often go to bed regretting, wondering what could I have done differently. But I try to tell to myself, you know, it was just a great day. Mm. You did what you did. What hap whatever happened, happened. But mm -hmm. it's, it was a good day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't help but think. Uh, that as a little kid, uh, I grew up in a Christian family and a Christian household, uh, but it applies to, there's no religious requirement. But as a kid, 
we had a little procedure that we said a prayer. You know, I remember that too. Now I lay me down to sleep. And in a way, regardless of what God or concept you pray to or think of, that if you said every night, and I actually like the idea of being on your knees, it's really touches my heart to be able to say, I don't have control over everything. There are many things that I don't have control over and I surrender to those. But now I lay me down to sleep and just leave it like that. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I, this is my day. I did the best I could, like I, you said. Yeah, I let go of everything else. And I remember something like that. I think my grandmother did something mm-hmm. at the end of the day with me. Yeah, yeah it's a good, good inspiration to <laughs> pick back up on. Yes. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate your time. Thank this you. was very inspirational for me as all our meetings are. I love talking to you. Well, thank you.